You're in the water loop. Waterloop is a nonprofit media outlet made possible in part by a grant from Springpoint Partners. For all content, visit waterloop.org. This is episode number 145, Mapping for Equity in Baltimore. In Baltimore, there are vast, disturbing differences from neighborhood to neighborhood in factors such as employment, education, crime, and life expectancy. While it would take a wide variety of efforts to address the root causes, an effort is underway to evaluate how green stormwater infrastructure could provide benefits for residents and improve equity across the city. In this episode, Megan Hazer, a city planner with the Baltimore Department of Public Works, explains how a map that prioritizes work locations was created using socioeconomic and health data, along with the suitability of the environment for green infrastructure. Megan also discusses the importance of asking residents about their preferred projects rather than the city dictating what will happen. The conversation will begin in one minute, but first, a word about our sponsor. Waterloop. This episode of Waterloop is sponsored by Varuna, the decision intelligence tool for water systems. The factors that go into running water systems are more dynamic than ever, but the tools for making decisions are still static. That's why Varuna built a resilience tool that uncovers blind spots, identifies risks, and generates insights, which are all presented in a user-friendly dashboard. There are many risks that water systems have to mitigate. While EPA identifies 10 vectors of risks that water utilities should track, the Varuna resilience tool captures 26, including internal and external risks. The tool allows operators to take immediate actions and leaders to make long-term strategic decisions, and is especially helpful for, for smaller systems. With Varuna, better data means better decisions. Learn more at varuna.city and let them know you heard about it on Waterloop. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. Joined for this episode by Megan Hazer. She is a city planner with the Department of Public Works in Baltimore. Megan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Excited to talk to you for a lot of reasons. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, a water and government kind of nerd myself and always wondered about city planners. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a Maryland native, spent a lot of time in Baltimore and uh, familiar with the city. So uh, interested in that stuff too. So what is a city planner? So that's a really good question. Um, it's kind of funny because my original degree was in landscape architecture before I got my master's degrees. So I think of it typically as just, it's like site design, but on a different scale. So you're looking at the different um, flows of resources and materials throughout a site, which in this case is a whole city, in um, trying to understand them so you can take some action, whatever that might be, towards achieving a specific goal. So, okay. um, And so we kind of connected at the, the intersection of water here. And I'm really curious about, you know, watershed planning in a city. So what, what does that mean if we're going to drill down even further? What kinds of things is a city planner looking at when it comes to watershed strategy and so forth? So our primary drivers here... Uh, 
there are a couple different ways this this happens depending on the the sewer system design of your city. Um, but where I currently work, we have a, a separate sewer system. So um, the reason we exist, the reason I'm able to work here um, is because of the, the Clean Water Act um, and something called the Municipal Separate Storm Sewer System, so the MS4 permit. So um, we are driven by by water quality. The, the federal government um, hands off powers to the state and the state regulates us uh, because we have a, a storm sewer system, um, which means the rainwater goes uh, straight into a pipe, which then goes straight into our waterways untreated. Um, some cities will have a combined sewer system where that rainwater goes into a pipe with sewage that is treated at the wastewater treatment uh, facility until you get a storm that's bigger than the pipe's capacity and then they overflow. So we have an entirely different system than that. So uh, watershed planning here essentially means, you know, looking at the different environmental characteristics, um, pollutants and drivers, and looking for ways that you can restore the natural hydrology because in natural hydrology, for the most part, um, there are natural processes that mitigate the, the impact of the pollutants that we, we um, collect on our paved surfaces uh, in an urban environment. Um, so, yeah. So, like, naturally, you would have, uh, you know, trees and bushes and fields and meadows, right? And that stuff captures the rain and filters it and nice clean water goes into the waterways. That's not the case in a city, right? You've got right. sidewalks, rooftops, parking lots, all that good stuff. And so you have to kind of figure out how to get that water, that runoff, uh, cleaner as it goes into Baltimore's creeks and streams and the inner Harbor. Right. So, and we can't forget also there's, there's soil microbes and there's uh, charged particles within soil that also play a role. So our, our biggest sort of weapons against uh, the pollutants that uh, would be entering our waterways are using vegetated and soil systems. And then we also, um, because in an urban environment, we're really highly restricted by utilities and things like that, where some places you just can't put a vegetated system. Um, we have sort of direct removal things like inlet cleaning and, and street sweeping, which don't change the design of the landscape, but they're operational. So we talk about the things that we plan for in terms of projects, programs, and partnerships. And the partnerships piece is really important because we can only do things as a city um, agency. We can only do things uh, on, on public property. And, and most of the city is actually private. So we have to figure out ways you know, who else is doing things where their goals are aligned with ours and how do we interact with them and in some case regulate them and in some case, you know, provide funding or other ways to work together, share information, um, all hands on deck. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, the angle I really want to kind of get uh, get this conversation focused on is on like equity. And again, you, your work kind of caught my attention because of uh, that emphasis, like looking at city planning, looking at watershed planning, and like, okay, how can we address equity issues through some of these processes? Uh, can you do a better job of explaining it than I just did? And and kind of what's what's developed there, and and what your interest, you know, one of your interests has become around this. Sure. Well, I'll certainly. <laughs> it's a big, try. huge question. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's there's a few things that are really interesting about um, Baltimore. Um, a, we have. Uh, a lot of really good data available by uh, geographic units they call community statistical areas. So um, that's 
compiled by an organization called um, Baltimore Neighborhood Indicators Alliance. Um, and also our health department makes metrics available by the same geographical units. Uh, so so that's, that's a start. Um, mm-hmm. Baltimore City has uh, nearly a 20-year gap in life expectancy across neighborhoods. So um, you see my public health lens coming through here because um, that is what initially uh, brought me to uh, this work where we were, were talking about equity in a, in a stormwater context. Um, so, you know, those those disparities are artificially created and they're very complicated. So mm-hmm. no environmental change is going to fix that that discrepancy. But the, the factors that drive human health are so complex, um, ranging from environment to behavior. And obviously those things intersect quite a bit. Um, Genetics is a very tiny piece of that. We know that. Medical care is also a very tiny piece of that. Um, but everything else uh, is modifiable by a really wide range of people. You know, whether you literally, if you're just, um, I, I was going to say professional, but that's not that's not really correct. But um, the point is, if we want to see those those unjust uh, disparities disappear you need a wide variety of people coming at it from a wide variety of different angles. Um, And Baltimore City um, is like many cities in that we have um, a long history of of, uh, racial discrimination. We were one of the first, we were the first city to have um, a racialized zoning law. And um, I'll have to give credit to Dr. Lawrence Brown um, and his work called the, in coining the term and writing the book, The Black Butterfly, which talks about a lot of what is driving these artificially created um, unjust disparities in health. So, I mean, public health people talk about this a lot. And then, you know, environmental folks talk about this a lot and community folks talk about this a lot. Uh, one of the really interesting things about stormwater is there's a federal law that uh, you know, the Clean Water Act that mm-hmm. says we have to address stormwater. Some of the tools we have to address stormwater are important for creating healthier living environments, which is a piece of that pie. So um, in starting this work, really this, you know, I, we, our team saw this as an opportunity to think about because we're so highly urbanized, there's a lot of people that live here. First of all, if, if we want to improve water quality, we have to think about people because people's behavior and their perceptions and their knowledge and all those things matter for water quality, no matter what. Um, but it's also an opportunity to think about how we shape our investments um, to help chip away as as uh, at some of those um, challenges that are driving this, those disparities. So we, we have a responsibility really to be thinking in that way because we have some power in addressing that. Um, thing that's unjust. Hmm. So, um, well, well, that's, I mean, that's tons of angles for me to follow up on there. Really, really great points. Uh, you know, this, that 20 year life expectancy gap, that's just jaw dropping, really incredible. Um, and like you said, water is just one piece of that. The environment is just one piece of that, right? You're not going to close that, that discrepancy with just changing some some planning there's a lot there um what do you start to do then from a watershed planning city planning stormwater management you know side of things to to contribute to that how how do you start to build toward equity 
So it's a really good question, right? It's a big problem. So what, yeah. like, where do you start? And I think a lot of people get like afraid of that. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned just, you know, through, through trying to do different things and you have to try something, start somewhere and then continue to always learn from it. So I want, you know, when people hear that, they're like, oh God, this is an emergency. We have to do everything right now and we have to do it perfect. Just um, conceptually starting something is really important. So the, the very first thing um, I should back up, sorry. <laughs> we think about equity um, in sort of four different ways. So there's mm -hmm. distributional equity, which is what kind of I'm going to focus on mostly today. Um, there's transgenerational equity. So that's thinking about our impact on subsequent generations. Um, there's systemic. So kind of the things we often talk about, like redlining, what are the things that sort of the policies we built over time that were inherently flawed that are creating um, disadvantages for, for certain groups of people that um, shouldn't exist? And we might be so used to them, but we're blind to them unless we consider the structural forces behind that. Um, and then there's procedural. And procedural is really important, I think, because it's how you um, share power with people in decision making. It's also probably, at least for me to think about, the most challenging. And it's something that we're trying to address as our next big piece. But this work that I'm talking about today doesn't address it. And it, it's so, so important because you know, as a public health person, stress is a factor. People need to feel like they have some sort of decision-making power over their lives. They don't want things done to them. Um, so that's just a really incredible, incredibly important piece that the mapping alone won't fix. Um, so if anyone's thinking about doing that, like, yes, do mapping, but also think how you engage people in the planning process with you. And that's that's the next big challenge that we are thinking through how to do and definitely won't get right the first time. Mm. So, well, let me just a, a side, a side question here. So, you know, you, you majored as a, in landscape architecture, right? You're, you're in this planning, you studied also public health and now you're, you know, very proficiently rattling off these different types of, of inequities, you know? So, so that must, where'd you learn that? <laughs> um, it's, it's something that it's interesting. Like this is a concept that was talked about um, in in my educational background as a landscape architect. We talked mm. a lot. I went to SUNY ESF, SUNY Environmental Science and Forestry. We we talked a lot um, about about redlining. Um, I also I, the whole reason I I decided to do landscape architecture is I actually grew up in a very like very out like rural area lots of green space. And I remember coming into a big city the first time and I like to walk a lot. And I was like, wow, like, this is really unfair. Things change quite a bit and, and why. So when, you know, different if professor, professors or academics were talking about that, I was really interested because I'm like, how, how can I do something to make environments healthier for, for nature? We are a part of nature. Uh, mm -hmm. So for nature and people. So that probably really drove, you know, I went and got a master of science at, and public health at the same time, but that the decision to do grad, graduate studies was like, I, I don't want to just be making things pretty. I want to think about the impact and have a way of tangibly considering what those decisions will result in. And so I sort of went back for a master of science and then was looking at um, 
green space, exposure, and human stress, and then saw the value of public health. I had to take a bunch of public health classes, and they were starting to really shed light on the complexity of what drives health outcomes. And Mm -hmm. at that point, I was halfway finished with a public health degree because I had to understand it to to do research with it. So I just was so that I just finished both. So yeah. Well, that's cool, though, that as part of your landscape architecture studies that they address those some of those, you know, historic environmental injustices and the source of some of the inequity around the around the country. That's that's awesome. All right. So bringing it back on track here, uh, Baltimore is kind of starting to head down this path, right, of of focusing more on on ways to build equity through all different aspects of the city, including watershed planning. So what are you guys up to? We'll try to try to bring it back to that. Yeah. So, um, so how this project emerged, uh, essentially we had to do watershed assessments. And so I said, this is a good opportunity. My, the leadership agreed. I was very lucky. I am very lucky here to have leadership that, that values trying new things and is sort of science oriented and, you know, why not? Let's try this. So what, what I actually did was use those community statistical areas that are made available um, for public use to generate a series of maps. So I generated a, a map that focused on socioeconomic and racial equity, and that had several different variables. So um, like it considered race, it considered education, um, hardship index, and life expectancy. Because uh, the social determinants of health with which some of those describe are going to be underlying everything. Your burden of stress is really important. Then uh, we looked at specifically the different factors that we had information on um, that we could modify through installing uh, vegetated practices. So um, things like impervious surface, uh, you know, percentage of green space, access to different green spaces. We had access to temperature data, surface temperature, um, canopy, things like that. So each map considered all these variables and, and uh, we uh, separated and scored things essentially by quintile and then assigned a, a, a point value um, to, to sort of rank them against each other for all the different areas in the city. Um, so socioeconomic and racial equ- equity, um, health supportive communities factors. And then the third one is really what is often considered in, in terms of a watershed assessment for water quality. So things like slope and soils, um, and you know the, the how much impervious surface is uh, publicly owned. So it was assessment of opportunities. So we made a composite using all of those different maps to prioritize um, our overall areas. So then we have priority areas one through five. And now the big challenge, and this is what we're trying to tackle now, is we are going to go there to, we call it ask first, um, engage people first, because we do not want to say, because we looked at these maps and and crunched these numbers in an office, that we know what's good for a community, because we don't. You know, we are coming and hoping to engage with people and understand um, and work with them to provide something that meets our requirements and also their goals and needs. Um, and so we hope to learn what that is. Yeah. And so this is basically what you're hoping to do when you hear from them. The idea is like greening these neighborhoods. Is that a, a, a just an easy way to put it? Like put in more green infrastructure, more vegetation, more green space? It's, 
it's so it's challenging um, because what we would like to do is kind of like, you know, the simple the simple solution is we go in and say, like, where do you want to take away pavement? Where do you want mm-hmm. bio? Where do you want to plant trees? Um, but that's already sort of making an assumption. So we're going to start with we're going to start with, you know, how do people want to be engaged? You know, what are their goals? And we're still I'm talking about a process we're still figuring out. But we don't want to assume that people want green most likely, but uh, we want to have that discussion, not come in with a, a another like lens. And the other thing is, you know, I wish that, you know, this was very easy to do in Baltimore, but we have a lot of site constraints like utilities. So there, this happens often where people want to see maybe a, a bioretention bump out and, and they, they hear all this stuff about green stormwater infrastructure and I'll differentiate that a little from green infrastructure. Cause that definition gets really wild depending on who you ask. Um, but that location will have, so many utility conflicts, it'll be impossible. Or in some cases, it's at the top of a hill. So mm. we can't necessarily say we will do everything people want, um, but we need to uh, find the, the best way to engage people. Because the other thing is like being disappointed that we can't do something mm. is going to frustrate people. And we don't want to do that either. So it's finding a balance. Um, but we do want to put things in locations that make sense to improve water quality and and align with people's um, needs and interests. So it's finding things together. And this gets to that procedural equity that you mentioned, right? Like, hey, we're not just going to come charging in there and tell people how to fix their neighborhood or how to make things better. You you really want to just have a conversation first. And it sounded like even having a conversation about how they want to have conversations, right? Not just even assuming the format for for exchanging information. Did I catch that properly? Right. Okay. And you know, there we have really active engaged communities that have are leading their own planning efforts and you know, we want to be able to to you know, connect with them and understand how we can best support the work that they're already leading as well. So, hmm. and uh I guess this gets to the fact that typically green infrastructure, green stormwater infrastructure is not equitably distributed across cities, right? It tends to go into the wealthier, whiter neighborhoods. So that's a really good question. And I will say that I have not done a recent literature review to see if there's anything that could be said across like all cities. And there's certainly... I would imagine if you try to do that, there'd be so many definitions of green infrastructure that it'd be really difficult to say anything about that. But um, that that can and often does happen. So uh, there, um, and there's it's also also can be some of that structural thing. So possibly, you know, we might have certain groups of people that are um, concentrated in older areas of the city where there are inlets that are very close together. And so the drainage areas are very small. And so that's that's almost an example of a, a structural um, barrier that, that might be driving why there are less uh, green stormwater infrastructure um, facilities in certain neighborhoods. Um, there has been research that actually says like the opposite if you're looking at parks. So in, in, if you look at distribution of parks, not like a bioretention facility, you you almost have the reverse situation um, in, in in Baltimore, and there's an interesting paper by Grove that delves into that a little bit. So, but what you do often see 
um, with some anomalies is that the environmental conditions that are mod- modifiable in that way do correspond a lot with, with race and income. Okay. Okay. Well, very interesting about how you did that analysis. I, and this slide here kind of shows that. Could you talk a little bit more about, about that analysis and, and kind of what it looked like then when it comes to mapping? Yeah, so absolutely. So the slide that I have queued up um, currently on the screen goes into what's behind the mapping um, because I you know, don't want it to be a mystery. Um, <laughs> just So breaking it down, we made essentially um, three separate series of maps, which then were combined um, to give us an overall priority. So we looked at socioeconomic and racial equity factors, and you can see in the screen what those different variables were. Um, And we ranked each community statistical area in in quintiles, and we assigned them um, a series of points. Um, So then we looked at which one had the highest points. Um, We also looked at uh, uh, the, the data spread across that and divided them up to, to quintiles, and then we assigned them a priority rank. So we did that for for each of the three um, kind of factor-based maps. So um, the, the next was the uh, health-related factors, so healthy community-related factors. So these are the things we thought um, that we could specifically modify through implementation of vegetative practices. And it's not comprehensive. It's, you know, we're uh, limited by the data that we had available, but these are the different things that we considered. Um, and so you see we, we uh, assign points and then we assign prioritization. Um, and we did the same thing for physical, physical feasibility for implementation of vegetative practices. And then we um, crunched the numbers across all three, and that gave us an overall um, prioritization score. Okay, cool. And now for one of my favorite things, maps. I love maps. <laughs> I imagine you do too. So I do. Yeah. Um, so this is the front end of that. So as I said, there were three factor-based maps. So um, prioritization by equity um, is the orangey-colored one. Um, the health supportive communities is the, the purple-colored one. And then physical feasibility for vegetative practices is um, the green-colored one. And so um, those maps were the the numbers behind the scene that I just showed you were then crunched and compiled into the overall prioritization maps. And so these um, priority areas one through five, um, we call them the areas that we will be asking first. Sure. So this is where all those different factors kind of point to the best opportunity uh, to, to make the most impact, right? Correct. And, you know, we have spoken about how we might want to up update these maps eventually, you know, as more information becomes available. Um, Mm. We've talked about factor weighting. Um, This is the first, this is the first uh, rendition of this. We're always looking for ways to improve it. And that just sort of goes back to the, you know, it's okay not to be um, perfect, but try something. And this is our, you know, hopefully pretty good first try at this. Uh, I guess, Megan, the the last question I want to ask you um, is explaining why green infra- stormwater infrastructure, how rather it can uh, improve people's lives, how it can help in those areas that you mentioned before, right? There's the 20 year life expectancy difference, there's the, you know, health 
factors, crime, poverty, whatever it might be. What are the benefits uh, of these kind of features that could, could help in these neighborhoods? Yeah, so there's a lot of really good research looking at, they call it, if you need a Google Scholar search term, built environment factors um, that affect health. And uh, some of those things are, you know, access to nature. Um, some of those things deal with heat islands. So vegetative practices um, will, because we're talking about bioretention and tree planting, essentially, when we say vegetative practices related to watershed restoration. Um, so those things accept water and they actually, um, they transpire that water and through converting the the, the water to water vapor, they're take, like taking away some of that heat energy and converting it to kinetic energy, energy which essentially mitigates the heat island um, effect. Um, heat can be a driver in uh, creation of some uh, air pollutants, so um, air quality. Uh, also, there's some physical things that happen when you have vegetation for taking um, air pollution uh, out of the air. So those are kind of the directly modifying the environment uh, pieces, but then also they're often implemented in conjunction with, you know, bump outs, which can be used for traffic calming. I guess the one thing that I would say in conjunction with that, and I would love if somebody is doing research on that, because I have been sort of hoping to find this, is something that, especially because we're really highly urbanized and we have a lot of conflicts that I often wonder is what are the, the thresholds of of change that are required so that somebody actually notices those things. So is one tiny bioretention because it's the only thing that we can fit in there going to do anything in terms of how people feel or the, the temperature modification. So that's a, that's a really important question we have to ask when we're sort of promoting these is you don't, you want to be really honest and transparent about what these things can do and, and can't. And, and sort of a, another thing that, Bringing it back to, so this is all focused on uh, distributional equity, but bringing it back to the procedural equity thing, the last thing you want to do is have somebody who is, you know, working three jobs and, and trying to find childcare and they come out and there's construction in front of their house they didn't know about and they didn't have a say in it. You're adding to someone who's already probably very stressed out their stress burden. So that's why engaging people in, you know, everything from like, if they want to be part of the decision-making process or they need to know that something's coming and being responsive to them, you know, it, if you're, if you're not doing that well, um, or the other thing is if you're not doing, maintenance well, you could be adding to the stress burden by putting these in neighborhoods that are already stressed. Um, so there, there are certainly uh, benefits, but there are certainly risks, and you have to consider them both together. Um, there's a, an interesting paper called, um, is green infrastructure a universal good? And there's several others. So, you know, we have to be uh, realistic and, and like knowledgeable and, and realistic and, and honest with people and think how we really harness those things that could be beneficial and, and minimize those things that could um, be risky. Yeah. A lot of great thought going into this. Um, you know, much, uh, very deep, not just at the surface, right? Really looking at all these different angles, such, such good stuff. Well, Megan, I'm glad we caught up. Thank you for sharing what's going on there in Baltimore with equity and mapping and green stormwater infrastructure. I really look forward to following uh, kind of the process and, and progress in the months and years ahead. But thank you very much. 
Nate, thanks so much for having me. And, you know, like I think it, people need to keep trying things and, and, and sharing and, and learning from it. And I'm excited to learn for others who are doing this work too. So thanks. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And thank you to this episode's sponsor, Varuna. To find all episodes, sign up for email updates, and connect on social media, visit waterloop.org. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.